0: My friends, Greg Kokel here for Stand to Reason, and I am actually not here this week. I am somewhere else. (laughs) So, for both Stand to Reason shows this week, I'll be sharing a special talk with you, and it's on the most controversial topic I've ever addressed, decision-making in the will of God. If you're like most people, you'll either love it or hate it, since I'm challenging a received tradition about how Christians are supposed to find God's will. And I'm going to supplant it with what I am convinced is the actual biblical model. So you be the judge. Here is the first installment of decision-making and the will of God. Well, tonight I want to do you a favor, Uh, but I have a feeling a lot of you are not going to appreciate it, at least not at first, because characteristically, when I talk about this material, the first response that most people have, generally speaking in churches, is they get mad at me. In fact, I've even been called a heretic in the middle of teaching this material. Someone got up in the middle of a session, pointed their finger at me and called me a heretic. So this is controversial. I'm just letting you know in advance. But I want to take issues that are really important and then assess them or judge them or determine their worth based on what Scripture says. And sometimes that's not easy because there are controversial issues, and you go to the text, and the texts aren't clear. I don't think that's true here. I think the texts are really, really clear on this one, and part of my job is to help you to see that. To see texts that you thought meant something else actually mean something else. When we're done, though, I think. Many of you will be thankful, and if you're not, maybe in a few weeks when you reflect more on this, you will be, because I have never had a teaching offered through our organization, Stand to Reason, in which people have said it has changed their life so much. I want to talk about the will of God, decision-making, and the will of God. This obviously is a really important issue because, as my brother once observed, we are either making decisions or we are living with decisions we've made. And it's hard to imagine in practical terms an issue more important for day-to-day Christian living than making decisions based on the will of God. And here I'm presuming the best of intentions by Christians who want to live in a manner that's pleasing to the Lord. They want to do what God wants them to do. At least it's their intention, and I know we all struggle with actually getting that done, and other things distract us, and sometimes the good that we want to do, we don't do. And, you know, Paul talks about Romans 6, and I understand that, but in general, our desire is to set our trajectory on the life of the Spirit, Romans chapter 8. We want to be after the Spirit and not after the flesh. Actually, Romans chapter 8 has got a passage that relates to what we want to talk about here, and one clarification that needs to be made later, and I'll get to that. But I just want to acknowledge that I understand the right motivation of Christians when it comes to this issue. But I think that not only is this tremendously important issue, but I don't think that there's hardly any other issue in day-to-day Christian living that is filled with more confusion and misinformation and mistaken proof texting and even downright superstition than the area of decision making and trying to find God's will. So let me tell you what I want to do in our sessions this evening. We're going to take two sessions to cover this material. What I want to do is I I want to look at the conventional wisdom on this issue. That is, what is it that characteristically Christians believe about how they determine the will of God? And I want to look at the texts that are generally pressed into service to that end we believe this, 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 because this verse, this verse, this verse, this verse, this verse says these things that support this view. And so I want to go back to those verses and look at them and find out what they actually say. So in a certain sense, since I'm taking exception with the conventional wisdom, I want to take something away from you. I want to take biblical confusion away, and I want to return to you some biblical order on this question. So I want to then construct, after I take something away, I want to construct what I think is a biblical model of decision-making. And then I want to look at actual cases in the New Testament where this model that I want to present to you, which is actually quite a simple model, is practiced by the apostles in their behavior in the book of Acts and expressed even in epistles that different apostles uh, wrote. I, I want to make some specific applications to particular things that we are faced with, like calling to ministry or uh, issues of getting married or those kinds of things, which are always really big, obviously big issues. And we want to do what God wants us to do in those things. So I want to talk about how these, this idea applies there. And then I want to address some questions that probably come to your mind regarding this material. And I know all the questions because I've been teaching this for over 30 years, this same material. Here's the question. How is God involved in the process of our decision-making as Christians? Well, there's a prevailing view, and the view is something like this. God has a plan for our lives. It's a plan for each of us individually, and and I'm choosing my words very carefully here. And this plan that God has for our individual lives, which includes all the important things and a whole bunch of the un- what apparently unimportant things, because as you know, a lot of the apparently inconsequential things turn out to be really big things when the reverberations of those decisions are felt down the line. So lots of things are in the mix here. There's a plan that we must discover in order for us to make our own decisions. So this prevailing view is God has has decided and we have to figure out what God has decided so that we can decide. And this thing plan that God has decided is what we call God's will for our lives. The process of figuring out what that is is called finding God's will for our lives and there are certain techniques we have learned in our Christian communities either explicitly or implicitly. That is, you may have gone to a teaching or read a book where it said, these are the steps to doing it. Or it may be that just hanging around other Christians and you hear them talking about it and kind of employing this conventional methodology, you absorb this and you're socialized into this view. But the view entails the idea that God wants us to know what his will is, and what he's done is he's, he's left us clues that we have to pick up on. So when we put it all together, we have, at least with regards to one issue, God's will for our life, or we're pretty sure, and then we step out. And some have implied, by the way, that this is so important that you shouldn't do anything, make no major decision unless God has told you to do this. And it kind of implies a, a bit of a sixth sense that spiritual maturity is the ability to kind of tune in. And some people have been around for a while, tune in better or faster. They have developed the op- ability to kind of, hear some of the language, hear the voice of God for them. They have learned how to separate out the voice of God from the other chatter, so to speak. They have been sensitive to God's leadings, So people will say, well, I'm thinking about doing this because I'm feeling led to whatever, or I'm feeling called to this particular ministry, and we've been seeking the Lord to find out what he wants. I believe it's God's will for me to do X, Y, Z, or I've received lots of confirmation, and there are certain open doors, and i prayed about it, and I have a peace about it. And so these are all terms I'm sure that you're familiar with because they are all part and parcel to this program, of biblical decision-making. People sometimes will say, I want to be in the center of God's will. I want to be in his perfect will. Not not just what he's going to let me do if I don't pay attention, then I can get away with it. I want to be right there. I want God's perfect will. And you'll hear phrases like, sometimes the good is the enemy of the best, right? So you're settling instead of going for that, that thing that is the perfect choice God has for you. Now, this is all based on a very important assumption, and I don't want you to miss this. On this system, God decides. God decides first. Now, what decision do you make? You make the decision to obey once you figure out what God has decided, but that's the underlying presumption. Now, I just want you to think about this for a moment because sometimes we are so immersed in our, our Christian communities and our, our kind of Christian way of doing things, or at least what we think are Christian, that we, we never even suspect that maybe we're going down the wrong trail. And I think this is true here. And so I want to try to get you to step out just for a moment, and I want you to think about that process I just described, which I think is largely familiar to most of you. I want you to think of this by way of analogy. You go to the doctor, and you're not feeling well. And so you, you need to see what's wrong, and you need to get help from the doctor. It's pressing. The doctor takes a look at you, and he says, well, you're right, you're really sick. In fact, I'm glad you came in because you really have a dangerous condition. But not to worry because I have the antidote. I have the solution. And you go, wow, that's great. What is it? And he says, it's somewhere in the building. Say, (laughs) this is a big building. It's like 10 stories here. Could be on the first floor. Could be on the fifth floor. Could be on the 10th floor. And when you say 10th floor, he goes... On the 10th floor, Mm -hmm. he's got something important that you desperately need. And instead of telling you what it is, he's giving you little nudges and hints that you have to decipher so that possibly maybe if you get it just right, you'll find the thing that saves your life. How long would you put up with that if that man was your doctor? Not at all. But this is the way people think that God works because that's precisely what I just described with regards to what might be called the uh, conventional wisdom on decision-making. I don't want to call it the traditional model, because it isn't traditional. It doesn't go back thousands of years. This model actually goes back about 150 years, but it is the one that we've received. As a growing Christian, being exposed to this kind of thing, of course, I wanted to find out what God's will was. I wanted to be able to make decisions that were consistent with God's word and and so that my life can be full and satisfying and the kind of thing that God wanted. And so I determined to find out what God's will was. And I thought the best place to find that out would be to go back to his word and then to take these things that people told me about and see how this played out in scripture. I want to fine tune it. Now, let me, let me offer you a conviction that is a, an operational principle going to scripture regarding principles of living the Christian life. It strikes me that anything that is really important for us to know and to follow and to live by from God's perspective on a day-to-day basis is going to be there and it's going to be clear and it's going to be repeated a lot of times. Is prayer important in the Christian life? Sure. Is it in the Bible? Everywhere. You got people praying. You got you got commands to prayer. You got examples of prayer. You got all kinds of stuff. Yeah, that's in there. All right? Because it's really important. Same thing with all of the major Christian disciplines. So, if there is a pattern or a system uh, for something as important as decision making in the will of God, then this ought to be evident clearly in the scripture. Indeed, the system I just described earlier, the conventional approach should be there really clearly and not hidden between the lines. So I went back to the text and this is where I want to begin my textual analysis of this system. I learned five things when I did my study on this issue that the Bible does not teach. And when I say that it doesn't teach it, I mean, it doesn't affirm it, it doesn't encourage it, it doesn't instruct it. There's nobody in the Bible who says, this is something that you do in order to get this result on God's will. What's the first thing? We'll cover them one by one. First, the Bible does not teach that we determine God's will from a feeling. Let me just say that again, because again, I'm choosing my words carefully. The Bible does not teach that we determine God's will from a feeling. And if it turns out that we do determine God's will from a feeling, then there, that, that it, I should say, if the Bible teaches that, then someone ought to be able to show me where it teaches it. So it's very easy to falsify my point. If I say the Bible doesn't teach that we get God's will from a feeling, all you got to show me is where it does teach. Now, there are a couple of places that people go. Uh, one of them is in 1 Kings uh, 19 and 13, and then following, and this is, uh, the, the, the still small voice passage. Well, you know you have this still small voice. Don't you ever get the still small voice at telling you what to do? Where's that from? First Kings, okay. First Kings nineteen. Now what's happening in First Kings nineteen? Elijah has just had a fabulous victory over Jezebel. He just slain seven hundred. Count them seven hundred prophets of Baal and Ashtoreth, A great display of God's power. Jezebel gets mad at him he gets all scared. He hikes up his skirts, and he heads south, and he goes to Sinai, and he's depressed, and so he hides himself in the cleft of the rock, and then there's a description of a scene where God goes by, and there's wind, and God isn't in the wind, and then there's fire, and God isn't in the fire, or something along that line, but there was, well, some translations apparently say, the still small voice, my translation doesn't say that. It says there was a sound of gentle blowing, and then Elijah comes out, and God talks to him quietly. Now, why is God talking to him quietly? Because he's depressed. All have deserted you. Hey, there's still 7,000 who haven't bowed their knee to Baal, is what God tells him, and he sends them back on a mission, but he's helping encourage you. And in that account, there is no inner nudge. God is talking to one of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament, So this is not an example of the kind of thing people are talking about, though they use the same language. But how about Romans chapter 8? There we see a phrase that is used over and over again by Christians, being led by the Spirit. And sometimes people say, well, don't you believe being led by the Spirit? I said, of course I believe in being led by the Spirit. It's right there in Romans 8. But I just don't think it means what you think it means. And see, there's a liability here, and just keep... just you know, just stash this one away. A lot of times we use biblical terms in unbiblical ways. We use biblical terms in our general parlance in the body of Christ in unbiblical ways, which is okay. We know what we're talking about. So, for example, we say, you know, yesterday I was down at the beach and, oh, man, I was in the flesh all afternoon. What a fight. But then I got my head straightened up and I got back in the spirit and, uh, okay, you know what I'm talking about, right? So we use the word in the flesh to mean sinning, though we're Christians, and uh, in the Spirit means we're not sinning, you know, as Christians, and we kind of got it together, but that isn't the way the New Testament uses the terms. Here in Romans 8, you'll see the phrase, in the flesh, and that means unregenerate. (laughs) No Christian could ever be in the flesh in the sense that Paul uses it in Romans 8, or John uses it in 1 John. They're using it in a different sense than we are. So you and I know what we're talking about when these We use this language, but it turns out when we go back to the text, we read in a 21st century definition into a first century document, and we get it all wrong. That's the same thing that happens with led by the Spirit. So how do we know what led by the Spirit means? We go back to the passage, and I'm just going to read Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 14, and let you know that this is the discussion about the two trajectories those who are after the flesh cannot please God. They are not able to please God. They're in enmity with God, hostility. It's impossible. Those who are after the Spirit, whole different story, okay? And you are not in the flesh, Paul says, if the Spirit of God dwells in you, and anyone who does not have the Spirit is none of his. So he's made the distinctions very clearly there, and we pick it up here at verse 12. So then, brethren... Since we are according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. If that's your trajectory, no hope. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Notice the contrast living by the flesh, living by the Spirit, living like hell putting to death by the Spirit the deeds of the body. Notice how he's referring to incorporating or appropriating the power of the Spirit now to live godly life. Next phrase. For, it's a prepositional phrase, it's attached to what comes before. For all who are being led by the Spirit, these are sons of God. There's our phrase. So what does Paul mean when he uses the phrase led by the Spirit? Well, the phrase led by the Spirit is in parallel with another phrase in the verse before it, and it's in parallel with the phrase, putting to death the deeds of the flesh. That is being led by the Spirit according to Paul is not getting nudges about what God wants you to do. Now, whether whether or not God does that, it's not what I'm addressing here. All I'm asking is what does Paul mean by this phrase? He doesn't mean that. He means appropriating the power of the Spirit to live a godly life. That's what he means. Now, this isn't the only place where this this phrase shows up. It shows up in one other place. Also, Pauline. In other words, Paul is the one who uses the phrase led by the Spirit. He's the only one, and he only does it twice, once in Romans chapter 8, the second time in Galatians 5. So let's go there. In Galatians 5, towards the end of the chapter, Paul is talking about the struggle that every Christian continually has with the flesh. The flesh sets itself against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh. So you can't do what you want. You are fighting one way or another. If the flesh is having victory, the spirit isn't getting what it wants. If the spirit is having victory, the flesh isn't getting what it it wants. In our lives as followers of Christ, we are going to be in constant struggle. That's a good thing. Because if you're not struggling, you have not the Spirit. I had a friend of mine who told me once before, he was a Christian, he never struggled with temptation. You get the point. He he always gave in. There was no struggle, right? So what does Paul say there? I say, walk by the Spirit, verse 16 in chapter 5, Galatians. I say, walk by the Spirit, you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, the Spirit against the flesh for those who are in opposition to another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, now here we got our phrase. But did you see the parallelism? What is led by the Spirit parallel with? Walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit, led by the Spirit, same thing. Walk by the Spirit, you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Why not? Because you're not carrying out the desires of the flesh. You're already doing the kinds of things the law wants you to do. Now, the deeds of the flesh are evident. And he's got a nasty list there. Then right after that, he contrasts it to the fruit of the spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. What's going on there in Galatians 5? Is Paul talking about personal guidance, being led by the spirit, feeling nudges so that you can know what God wants you to do? No, it's not there at all. He's talking about, in Galatians 5, the exact same thing he's talking about in Romans 8. Appropriating the power of the Spirit to overcome the flesh in our lives. And he uses the phrase, walk by the Spirit and led by the Spirit in Galatians 5 in parallel. In both places, led by the Spirit has the same meaning. Now, Jesus was also led into the wilderness by the Spirit. Actually, the word means he was impelled, he was taken. Very different situation here. The same word that was used when it says that Satan took him to the top of the mountain. Whatever was going on in that passage, it's never repeated in the New Testament. It's a unique circumstance, unique language. The led by the Spirit language is Paul's, and we realize he doesn't, he's not talking about individual decision-making. He's talking about something different. And this felt-led theology, I'm just going to tell you, leads to all kinds of problems. And if you've been around for a while, you realize it maybe personally because you run into tro- problems when you felt led to do something and it went south, or your friends felt led to do something that you knew was completely ridiculous, but God already showed them that this is what he wanted them to do, and so then they went off, and there's no talking to them, right? Because if you say otherwise or contrary to that, well, then you're fighting who? You're fighting God. God in their mind, all right? So there are applicational difficulties with this, in addition to the fact that there's no place in the Scripture that teaches that this is a means by which we get guidance from God. So the Bible does not teach that we determine God's will from a feeling. Second, the Bible does not teach that we determine God's will from inner peace. This is usually characterized by people saying, well, if you pray about it and you have a peace about it, then this is an evidence that this is something God wants you to do. So having a peace, an internal sense of equanimity, is taken as a sign from God. It's one of those hints that God wants you to move in the direction. If you don't feel peace, well, that's kind of like God giving you a check in your spirit, and he's kind of saying no to that, and so this is part of the methodology. So where do we get this scripturally? The only passage I have ever heard cited in support of this is in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 15. And here's what Colossians 3:15 says. It says, "Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts." But the peace of Christ rule and the word rule means to act as arbiter. So you can see how you'd get that when you initially look at the verse. If you have the peace, then the judge, the arbiter, the ruler says yes. If you don't have the peace, that's like saying no. So it makes sense to me. Problem is is when you go back to the passage and you read the passage itself. Colossians chapter 3, and I want to pick up the I want to pick up the context, uh, a few verses above it, because we have a rule at stand the reason, and the rule is never read a Bible verse. Always read a paragraph. At least if you want to be confident, you're getting the meaning of that individual verse correct. So that certainly applies in this case. Verse 12. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other, whoever's got a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Now let's stop there for a moment. So what's going on here so far? Paul in Colossians is addressing the Christians about how they behave amongst themselves, getting along with each other, being loving, being forgiving, being kind-hearted, having unity. In fact, there was a verse, beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are all called in one body, and be thankful. Do you see any reference to individual decision-making there? Any suggestion that you should just tune in to, to the peaceful vibes to see if this is what... No, he's not talking about that. He's talking about something entirely different. And when you think about it, you know, the word peace has two different senses, doesn't it? There's an internal peace, but then there's also an external peace, okay? You could have the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension that guards your hearts and mind in Christ Jesus, Philippians What for? That's an internal peace, right? But in Romans 5, it says that we're justified by faith, therefore we have peace with God. In other words, we're not at war with God anymore. God's not mad at us anymore. We are in a peaceful relation. That's an external thing. Now, when people cite this passage to have a peace in your heart as a sign from God, is that the external peace that they have in view or the internal peace? The internal peace, right? What peace does Paul have in mind here? Well, considering the context here, I think he's talking about the peace between Christians. And he's saying, let peace be the governing rule here. And the New Testament has this message lots of time. Let all be harmonious, sympathetic, kind-hearted. Peter says in First uh, First Peter chapter three, uh, not returning evil for evil, but but uh, blessing instead. So so this is a message we see throughout Scripture about how we ought to be towards each other. There is nothing in this passage that suggests having a certain feeling is a hint from God that you're on the right track with regards to His will for your life. So there is no place in the Bible that I know of that teaches peace is a means. Of determining God's will, so we don't determine God's will from a feeling. It doesn't teach that. It doesn't teach we get it from inner peace. What about um, open and closed doors? Because this is a part of it. You know, you 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 might be praying about something. You have a peace, you feel led, and then a door flies open, or maybe a floor a door goes closed, and this could be a sign from God. We get the concept of uh, open and closed doors uh, in First Corinthians. There's a great example there. 1 Corinthians sixteen verses eight and nine. Paul says, but I shall remain in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door of effective service is open to me, and there are many adversaries. So here Paul saw an open door, and he said, I'm going through it. Looks good, okay? The problem is, if you flip a couple of more pages over, you're in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, and he says there, now when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened for me in the Lord... Wow, what could be more obvious? I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus, my brother, but taking my leave of them, I went on to Macedonia. What? You didn't go through that door? Paul, wasn't that a sign from God? Well, he didn't take it as a sign from God. He saw one open door, and he walked through it. He saw another open door where where there was great opportunity in the Lord, and he said, no, I want to go be with Titus. I'm heading for Macedonia. There is no indication that Paul saw doors that were open as imperatives or even as hints from God. And I will tell you the most dramatic open door that Paul didn't walk through. Acts 16, verses 26 through 28, the setting there is Paul is in prison in Macedonia. The Philippian jailer, remember that one? And in the middle of the night, he and, and... One of the other brothers, a couple of them are singing and praising the Lord, and there's an earthquake, and their chains fall off their arms, and the doors fly open. And when the jailer comes up to see what happened, he realized the doors were open. He figures that's it for him because the prisoners have escaped. He's getting ready to fall on his own sword rather than have Caesar do it for him. And Paul says, Don't harm yourself. We're all here. Now, let me ask you a question Who opened that door? to the prison. God opened the door to the prison. Even when God miraculously opened the door, Paul did not take it as an imperative. Now, I had somebody tell me when I taught that point that the reason that Paul didn't go through the door is because the Holy Spirit had told him not to. Now, I just have a question. Where do you find that in the text? That is a complete invention to bolster a view that has not been supported by Scripture so far. This is what people say when they get really, really attached to a point of view. This is why I mentioned earlier when I talk about this, people get angry. No, rather, Paul took the opportunities as they came to him. He didn't see open doors or even closed doors as a sign from God. We'll find that out when we look at an example from the book of Romans. Fourth, the Bible does not teach us to determine God's will from fleeces or providential signs. Now, the concept of fleeces goes back to to Gideon and judges chapter six and seven and if you recall the situation, Gideon well in 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 microcosm, so to speak, the simplest way of telling it is with regards to Gideon going down against the Midianites. He asked God to give him confirmation by laying out a fleece, and if there was dew on the fleece and not on the ground, of course, it's a supernatural sign, then, then he knew that God wanted him to go, and of course, God um, did that, and then he said, best two out of three if there's, if there's dew on the ground and not on the fleece, you know, I just need another confirmation. And then, as it turned out, that wasn't even enough because basically, Gideon was a coward, and although what he does next strikes me as requiring a little bit of bravery, he, he sneaks into the Midianite camp, disguises himself, and he's sitting around the fire, and he hears one of the Midianites tell of a dream that he had, and that there was a barley loaf came down the hill and smashed their camp, and he interpreted it as, surely God has given us over into the hands of the Jews. And that was, okay, so now Gideon's convinced, and he goes back, and he carries out God's commission. So people have drawn from this example, the the conclusion that putting out a providential sign is an appropriate way of determining what God's will is. And so he can put out the fleece. Let me just make a couple observations about the judge's passage. Uh, First of all, Gideon did not put out the fleece to determine God's will. God had already told him. And that happened when he was in the threshing floor, threshing indoors, which you can't do that very well because there's no wind indoors to blow away the chaff but he's frightened of of uh, of the Midianites, and then an angel of the Lord appeared to him and gave him a commission to fight the Midianites. Okay, then as an act of doubt, he throws the fleece out twice and then later on finally convinced to go. Secondly, I want you to notice that Gideon had a supernatural fleece. That is, this fleece could only be fulfilled by a supernatural act of God. That's not the kind of fleeces that we have, right? Well, Lord, if she answers by the second ring, she's the one. Well, what if she just happens to answer on the second ring, you know? So now you've got a false positive, right? So you've got to have some kind of uh, sign if you're going to have a fleece that you cannot get a false positive on. So why don't you make a supernatural fleece if you're inclined to do this? I hope you're not, but it just, God, if you want me to go, elevate the sofa. How about that? Now, if, if the sofa doesn't move, do you know now that God doesn't want you to go? No, you don't, because that could be a false negative, can't it? So you have to have two fleeces. You have to 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 eliminate both. Father, if you want me to go, elevate the sofa. If you don't want me to go, elevate the piano. Now, if nothing comes off the ground, guess why? What? what your your fleece is bogus, right? God isn't going to work through it. you. Fleeces put God to the test largely. Now, there are occasional providential signs in the Scripture, but they don't happen very often, and we have absolutely no evidence in the New Testament that this is an appropriate way of going about doing our business and decision-making. But it also is based on the presumption that I mentioned in the beginning, the presumption that God decides and then he gives hints. And so we're just asking for a dramatic hint, aren't we, with the fleece? The Bible doesn't teach that. We have an occasion of that happening. It doesn't teach that this is what we're supposed to do, especially in the New Testament where I think New Covenant instruction, where we find our New Covenant instruction is what I should say. So first, the Bible does not teach we determine God's will from a feeling. Secondly, it doesn't teach we determine it from inner peace. Thirdly, it doesn't teach we determine God's will from open and closed doors. Fourth, it doesn't teach that we determine God's will from fleeces or providential signs. Finally, the Bible does not teach that we determine God's will from confirmations. Now, the notion of confirmation actually shows up a number of times. We see it uh, four times in the New Testament. Matthew 18 is one example where there's sin in the body and you have to have two or three witnesses. Uh, We see it in 2 Corinthians, also in 1 Timothy 5, Hebrews chapter 10. But they're all referring back to the same verse, or actually two identical verses in the Old Testament. One in Deuteronomy 19 verse 15, the other one, Deuteronomy 17, verse 6, on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, he who is to die shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. So what we have in the Hebrew law is we have a criterion for judging guilt based on witnesses. You got to have two or three. You can't just have one. In serious crimes, you can't just take somebody's word on it. And it turns out that same concept is being applied in every single case where uh, this phrase is used in the New Testament. Confirmations are not used in the New Testament for the kind of decision-making that we're talking about. There is no sense here that Paul is saying, you know what, if you line all the things up just so, you've got your confirmation, and then you've figured out the will of God. That kind of language is completely absent from any of these passages. And by the way, confirmations are meant to confirm something, right? They are meant to confirm... Another testimony. So, what is the other testimony? The peace about it? The feeling led? The open and closed doors? The fleece? No, none of those are biblical either. There's nothing else to confirm, is the point that I'm making. So, the Bible does not affirm, it does not direct, it does not instruct that we determine God's will from feeling led, having a peace about it, open doors, fleeces, or confirmations. Now, I don't know about you, but when I first discovered this, this really shook me up because everybody was using this system and they were all quoting the same verses. And I promise you, you go to the bookstore down the street, the Christian bookstore, and you look up a book on the decision-making and the will of God. Well, except for the book by that title, (laughs) written by Gary Friesen. But any other book that deals with decision-making, they are all going to cite the same passages. And some of those books are written by really good people. And I promise you, I ask myself the question, when I see these things written by these people, I ask myself, did they ever read the verse in its context? Because we have all just done that. And you can decide for yourself if those verses teach A method of personal decision-making or if they're referring to something completely different for my money they're referring to something completely different there is no biblical substance to this view now are you saying greg that god never gives personalized guidance in the bible no i didn't say that because there are occasions of this but you'll notice something when it happens that is when god steps up and says in one sense or another, I want you to do this. This is my will for you. There are certain characteristics of that happening. First of all, it's rare. Ironically, even in the book of Acts, where people think this is happening all the time, the book of Acts covers from 30 to early 60s. That's 30 years. There are 14 instances of this from the time of Pentecost to the end of the book. That isn't very much. And they're actually uh, grouped together Only one of Paul's three missionary journeys, the first one, was specifically directed by God. You have a a couple of jail breaks. You have a couple of occasions where, let's see, during Paul's conversion. You have a couple of occasions of this during uh, the Ethiopian eunuch situation. You have two of those. So it turns out even those are kind of grouped together. And a handful of incidents don't constitute a model. They are descriptions of what took place. They're rare. Second thing, that you'll notice is that personalized guidance in the Bible is an intrusion. These people aren't sitting around waiting for God to tell them what to do. They already got the great commission. They're all trying to do it. And then God speaks out of nowhere and tells them something, does something. An angel shows up. There's a vision. Jesus visits Paul while he's in Corinth. He says, uh, uh, don't, don't be afraid any longer. I have many people in this city. I think it's kind of interesting. Paul was afraid. The great Paul, the apostle in Corinth, he's a little nervous there. Of course, he has been beaten up enough times. I can imagine that. We can sympathize, can't we? But he's nervous about it. Then Jesus shows up. That's it. So you have these circumstances where they are, they are not uh, happening very often. They're rare. They are an in intrusion to the circumstance. And third, they're, they're supernatural. You know why it's important that these are supernatural? Like, bang, there it is. There's no mistaking it. Paul gets shot there on the the road to Damascus, and he doesn't say, "You know, Reuben, I think God might be trying to talk to me." I'm not sure, but I'm feeling led. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuted? Why is it supernatural? So it's clear. So there's no confusion. And here I want to just direct you to a. a a passage you might not have thought of in this regard is 1 Corinthians 14. I call this the lesson of the bugle. In 1 Corinthians 14, Paul is addressing uh, a problematic church, but abuse of all kinds, and one of them is abuse of spiritual gifts within the service. So they're speaking in tongues without interpreters. Pardon me, there's lots of chaos. He said, that shouldn't be that way. You should have order. In your... Look, he says, if the bugle produces an indistinct so- sound, who-, who will answer the call to battle? Now, back in those days, they didn't have comms like we have now. Bugles were comms, like in the Civil War, okay? There was a certain tune that would signal advance and retreat. You want to make sure you're here and you're a guy because you don't want to hear somebody else's re- advance when you should be retreating, you know? It could be dangerous. This was confusion. And Paul talks about that. That's the point he's making here. He says, if the bugle produces an indistinct sound, who will prepare himself for battle? And then then look what he says. So also you, unless you utter by the tongue speech that is clear, how will it be known what is spoken? And apparently there are Christians all over who think that God is actually in the habit of speaking, in a sense, things that are not clear by just dropping his little hints around therefore violating this principle which Paul is giving regarding revelation, by the way. No, if God's going to talk to us, he's not going to mumble. If he's going to give a directive, he's not going to give you a nudge. Now, I think there are lots of ways that God get his work done, and I think he nudges us, okay? But I don't think you have to worry about, is that God nudging, or is that me nudging, or is that the devil nudging? You don't have to worry about that. If you feel an inclination to do something, you assess the inclination on its own merits, if you feel an overwhelming urge and it's a good thing, then do it. You don't have to get all introspective. And then maybe in hindsight, depending on what ends up happening, you can say, yeah, God's hand was in on that. God has all kinds of way of kind of salting the feed, so to speak. So we, you know, you can't, you can lead a horse to water. You can't make him drink. They say you can salt the feed. Well, God does that. This is all behind the curtain of his sovereignty. We don't have to worry about that. If he's got something to say to you, Go do that. He's going to say it clearly. And that's why I think these circumstances, in every case, that we have any detail about. There's one that was a little bit unclear uh, in Asia Minor with Paul. But uh, all the rest of them were really clear. They were supernatural. So the biblical characteristics of special guidance are that they are rare, they are unsought, they are supernatural in character, and they are clear. So if you have something like that, well, then you obey the Lord. That's never happened to me. So apparently, the Bible does not teach that we get God's will through feelings, peace, open closed doors, circumstantial signs, fleeces, confirmations. When he does give special directions, it follows an entirely different pattern. So as I'm going through this stuff myself, thinking this is, well, if that isn't how you find God's will, what is God's will? I thought, well, Bible uses the phrase, well, maybe we should go back and take a look and see what it says about God's will. And I realized, as I went through passages that use the phrase God's will, that I, there were a couple of things going on. Ephesians 1.11, God works all things after the counsel of his will. Wow. Romans 9.19, who resists his will? Daniel 4.35, he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off his hand. Well, so I realized there is a sense in which the phrase God's will is describing something God wants that he guarantees. Something God wants that he guarantees. Who resists that? He does that in the host of heavens, the inhabitants on the earth. He works all things at, off to the counsel of that. So there is a will of God, spoken of, of, of in Scripture, that cannot be resisted. All right? Let's just call that um, a sovereign a pretty good word. Yeah, I think that works. Let's call that sovereign. God has a sovereign will. God's sovereign will, for the most part, is hidden. It's his secret designs. Now, sometimes we know because he tells us. We know what's going to happen in the end of the age. I mean, heaven and hell, that kind of stuff. There are other things he tells us about things he's going to do in the future. If we're clever, we figure it out. Then we know what his will entails. A lot of times we know God's will looking backwards, God's sovereign will. We look and see what he has established. Paul said in Galatians that God has set me aside from my mother's womb. He saw, understood the sovereign working in his own life of God's hand. So, I think about stand to reason. Now, I never felt led to start stand to reason. In fact, I, actually, I felt led, the different kind of led. When I was challenged to start an organization, I just shined that on. The lead in the seat of my pants is what I'm talking about, in case you don't get it. But as I look back after Things got rolling, and I I could see all of these particular, peculiar things that God had put in place. One of them that went back to before I was even a a Christian. In the summer of 1973, before I, I became a Christian in September, two or three months later, but I saw God's hand. And so, lots of times, we can see God's sovereign will by looking backwards, but God's sovereign will is that will that He has that He gets what He wants. So there's no fulfilling God's will. It isn't like, not in that sense. It's like, okay, I better do these things in order to fulfill God's sovereign will because sovereign, God fulfills his will in that sense. Okay, so that's one way that the Bible uses the phrase will of God. And there's a second way, and I'll read you some verses. Let me start with 1 Thessalonians 4.3. For this is the will of God. Been looking for God's will. Oh, there it is. For this is the will of God. How about that? even your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. You want to know what God's will is for your life? Don't live with your girlfriend. Don't sleep with your girlfriend or boyfriend. There it is. That's God's will, that you be sanctified. Ephesians 5, 16 through 18, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not be drunk on wine, for that's dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. So God's will is that we be sanctified God's will is that we be spirit filled essential right there second Peter three nine the Lord is not willing that any should perish so God's will is that we be saved saved sanctified spirit filled all lessons so far first Peter two thirteen through fifteen submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether to a king as the one in authority or to the governors, as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right for such is the, guess what? Will of God, that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. So there's, there's the will of God again. Saved, sanctified, spirit-filled, submit. These are all God's will. First Thessalonians 5.15, rejoice always. Pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is, there it is again, God's will for you. See, the New Testament has lots to teach us about God's will. But do you see that this is a different kind of will than what we were talking about a few moments ago? Because we are talking about the first type of God's will, God's sovereign will, something God wants and he gets for himself, right? The second type of God's will is something he wants, but he doesn't get it, we're supposed to get it or do it. He leaves it up to us to do it, or to put it in different terms, he leaves it up to us to obey. So a second sense of God's will that we find in the Bible is might be called God's moral will, that which he wants us to do, but maybe we don't. That's why we're enjoined to do it. Now, what is conspicuous about those verses that I mentioned that had the phrase, God's will is for you, this, 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 and this, in virtue of its absence. Well, what's conspicuous to me is the absence of any reference or insight on God's individual will for me. I know we're supposed to be saved, but that's for everybody. I know we're supposed to be sanctified and spirit-filled. We're supposed to submit, and we end up suffering. That's in 1 Peter. It's God's will for us to suffer. Not very popular. It's in there. But that's all of us. I don't want to know what God's will is for all of us. I'm trying to figure out what God's will is for me. I want to know what job I should take and what ministry I should get into, a woman I should marry, and on down the line. Well, why doesn't any of those verses that actually talk about God's will ever talk about God's will for me? Uniquely so. Do you think that possibly God's will, that is the biblical use of the term, when it's not talking about sovereign will, that God's will maybe is not about what you do, but who you are? Maybe God is less concerned with who you marry than he is in the kind of husband that you are. Maybe he's less concerned with what job you take than what kind of employee you are, or what, uh, less concerned with how you minister or what ministry position you take, but more concerned with how you minister, with faithfulness, etc. Maybe it turns out that God's will is you, not some decision, which may be incidental, but you. And I'm not saying the decisions aren't important. We'll get to that later. I'm saying the point of these passages is you. You want God's perfect will? Be like Jesus. And here we have teaching from one of the most, at least partially misunderstood promises in the New Testament. Everything works for good. It's all going to work for good. Well, that's what it says. Romans 8, 28, it's a fabulous verse. It says, we know God causes all things. So there's confidence builders in the verse, but there's also a qualifier. We know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him and for those who are called according to his purpose, right? It doesn't stop there. Because what we're tempted to think about there is that the way it's going to work for good is if I lose this girl, I'm going to get a prettier girl down the line. Or if I lose this job, I'm going to get more money at another job down the line. Romans eight twenty eight. praise the Lord. And you know, and sometimes it works that way and we have testimonies and we honor God with that. But that's not what Paul is talking about. How do I know? Because I kept reading. We know God causes all things to work together for good, for those who love him, for those who are called according to his purpose for, there's one of those prepositions again, those whom he foreknew he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. God's promise in Romans 8, 28 and 29 is that nothing will be wasted. It isn't that he's going to close the door and open a window. He might just close the door and leave you in there. But he's not going to waste it. Because what he's most concerned about is making us like his son. That's his commitment to us. That's the promise of Romans eight twenty eight. And that's the point of God's will in the New Testament sense. God's will is you. Second Thessalonians three five, and may the Lord God direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. Romans one uh, make that twelve two. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Or what about God's individual will for me? What about that thing that I'm trying to find? Thanks, Greg. You give me a lot of good stuff, but that's not what I'm after here. God's sovereign will is secret. Okay, got that. God's moral will is revealed in the Bible. Okay, that's for all of us that's it. What do you mean? Well, there's no other will in the Bible. What do you mean? I I found no special category of God's will in the scriptures tailor-made for me that I must discover before I can make my decisions. What are you saying? I'm saying that the concept of the individual will of God as commonly understood does not exist in the scriptures. And that this whole this whole program, in my view, is a house of cards, a house of scriptural cards built on a false premise. The cards are all the verses that are misused. The false premise is that God decides for us and then gives a hint to us what he's decided so we could decide. It doesn't teach that. In terms of our functional day-to-day decision-making, there's no personalized God's will for me to discover. There are no signs I have to read, no voice of God I have to hear. In fact, the concept of the voice of God in the sense that is practiced today is completely absent from Scripture. There's no individualized perfect will I have to figure out. There's no permissive will I have to beware of. There's no the good is the enemy of the best. There's no center of God's will. There's none of that in the text, unless you mean center of God's will in the moral sense that I described it earlier, like Jesus. But doesn't God care? I still have to make decisions, Right? Isn't there like a godly way? That does, does the Bible have anything to say about this? Well, the answer to all of those things is yes, God does care. There is a biblical way. The Bible has a lot to say about these things. And what I want to do in our next session is I would like to give you a biblical model that is actually taught in Scripture, that is actually practiced in Scripture, and is one that really works. And we'll do that next session.